This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on November 7th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. Today is the 100th anniversary of the death of Alfred Russell Wallace, co-developer along with Darwin of the idea of natural selection as the driving force of evolution. To mark the occasion, I spoke with Peter Raby of the University of Cambridge, author of the 2001 biography, Alfred Russell Wallace, A Life. I called him earlier today at his home near Cambridge. So you're about to leave for uh, the unveiling of a statue. Yes, Wallace's um, statue is going to be unveiled at half past four this afternoon in the Natural History Museum. And this is the kind of culmination of the celebration of the centenary of, of Wallace. So uh, I think the comedian and writer Bill Bailey is going to unveil it, and I, David Attenborough is giving a lecture afterwards. Oh, so that's the marking of this uh, of this year. Uh, for those who have only heard of Darwin, tell us about Wallace. Wallace was Darwin's co-discoverer of natural selection. And he conceived his, his theory of, uh, of evolution by natural selection independently while he was on a collecting journey in the Malay archipelago. And he had been thinking about evolution uh, for some time and had written um, one important preparatory paper, but neither Darwin nor anybody else had any idea really that, that Wallace was uh, on the hunt um, and close to his discovery. So he was in correspondence with Darwin at the time. First he started collecting for him and then uh, uh, a more sort of intellectual uh, and friendly correspondence uh, continued. But I think neither man realized in detail what the other was doing. But various things that Darwin put in his letters encouraged Wallace to send Darwin his theory, which he wrote in, in Tanati uh, and posted off, saying to Darwin, if you think well of this, perhaps you would show this to Sir Charles Lyell. Wallace, having heard from Darwin that Lyell had taken note of previous writings of Wallace. And the, the letter arrived on Darwin's doorstep at, at Down House in Kent, and to all intents and purposes, Darwin opened it and read the paper and saw his own theory, which he had been working on for... 20-odd years, but are not yet published. And this is 1858? So this is 1858, June 1858, when, when the letter arrived. Uh, 
and Darwin was shattered and, and somewhat panicked, I think, uh, by this letter and sought advice from Lyle and from his friend Hooker. And following the advice of the two men, they, they, they really took over um, the, the proceedings and they decided that it would be fair um, whether it was fair or not is, is up to others to decide, but they decided that it would be fair for certain writings of Darwin to be published, um, to be presented to the Linnaean Society alongside Wallace's paper. So th this joint um, declaration to the world about the new theory was made uh, very rapidly at the end of June uh, in, to the Linnaean Society in London. And Wallace is therefore sort of joined irrevocably um, to Darwin. But the reason why Wallace is less well-known, uh, well, there are lots of reasons why he's less well-known um, than Darwin, but I think the principal reason is that Darwin then set to and wrote uh, on the origin of species, which came out the following year, which was the, the publication which really cemented his name and reputation and had all the, uh, all the detailed background uh, proof to support the theory. Um, so Wallace has this hugely important uh, uh, role uh, alongside Darwin in bringing about the, the publication of the theory. It should be said that uh, in your book, Alfred Russell Wallace, A Life, you make much more extensive use of the Wallace correspondence, uh, not just with Darwin, but with everyone, than previous biographers had. And so uh, I think to many people who are aware of the Darwin-Wallace connection, this post from Wallace just arrives out of the blue at Darwin's home in 1858 and that, uh, you know, Darwin perhaps had never heard of Wallace before, but that's obviously not the case. They had been in correspondence. Yes, they had been in, in correspondence. Uh, I, I just think that, that Darwin had not um, fully appreciated um, the detail of Wallace's thought, mm -hmm. which is perfectly understandable. Somebody is, is writing letters um, half the world away, uh, letters which take several months to, to arrive uh, in the midst of uh, a very busy uh, schedule of, of collecting and, and writing papers and, uh, and just surviving. And obviously he's, he's not sitting down to, to do an A to Z of what's in his mind. He's, he, he tends to uh, either respond to Darwin's previous letter or write about what's on the top of his head. And so I think it's, it's perfectly understandable that, that uh, you know, Darwin would be genuinely taken by surprise by this sudden, extremely elegant writing of the theory. Now, as a younger man, Wallace had uh, traveled in the New World, and uh, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Can you tell us a little bit about his, uh, his adventures and, and what happened to him? Yes, well... Wallace was very much a, a 
self-educated and, and self-made man. And he was actually trained as a surveyor. He was apprenticed uh, to his elder brother and worked as a surveyor uh, on, in various places in, uh, in England and Wales, uh, for instance, on the, on, the on the early railways surveys uh, and so on. And he became more and more interested in natural history and taught himself about that, also in conjunction with another young naturalist called Henry Walter Bates, whom he met at Leicester. Um, and these two young men decided that they, they could make a living by traveling and collecting and sending back the specimens they collected for sale in London. And they set off for the Amazon together. And after, uh, after a while, they, they separated and, uh, and went slightly different routes um, in, in the Amazon and, the, uh, and Wallace went up the uh, Rio Negro. Uh, and he didn't, you know, for somebody with, with, no, with no background and no money behind him, um, they were, they were self-financing themselves. They had a little money to begin with, but then they were totally dependent on the success of their collecting and on their agent, Stevens, in London, selling their beetles and butterflies and everything else, and then transmitting more funds out uh, to the Amazon so that they could fund the next stage of, of their journeys. And Wallace uh, was amazingly successful in this venture, but decided to come home, partly because, I think, of exhaustion, partly perhaps because his younger brother, whom he persuaded to join him, um, had died of yellow fever uh, in, in Para. And partly because I think he, he wanted to capitalize on, on what he'd collected. So he, he set sail uh, for England. Some of his collections had gone ahead of him, but he had live, live animals and birds with him. Uh, he had his notebooks, he had specimens and so on. And the ship he was on caught fire. They had to take to the boats. Uh, and he lost practically everything. Um, and in fact, the, the boat that rescued them after they'd been tossing about in the Atlantic for, uh, for a, a lengthy time, they were picked up by another boat, which was extremely leaky and unseaworthy, limped back to England, and Wallace arrived basically with the clothes he stood up in um, and had to begin all over again. So that, that was his sort of first collecting phase and he then rapidly sort of put himself pulled himself together uh, his agent had fortunately insured the, against loss so he had a little money and because he'd done so well he began appearing at some of the learned societies in London uh, and he was actually sponsored by the uh, Royal Geographical Society, who arranged a passage for him out to the Malay Archipelago, out to, out to Singapore. So after about 18 months, he set out 
for an eight-year journey to the Malay archipelago, uh, which during which he he made this um, scientific discovery, but um, during which he also made astonishing collections in some very out-of-the-way places. Can you uh, and incidentally discovered um, the the demarcation line between the between the Asian and the Australian uh, fauna, which is now known as Wallace's line. Can you give us any detail as to his thinking that led him to understand natural selection while he was in the melee? Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can. It's, it is a slight, a slight mystery how, which bit of the, the jigsaw puzzle suddenly fell into place for him. Um, he gives various accounts of this. Uh, and they're not terribly detailed, but one of them, one important piece, as it was for Darwin, um, was from his reading of Malthus and realizing that uh, food supply uh, would be limited in any area or uh, sub-area, and therefore those animals most, um, most fitted and suited to the particular niche in which they were, or the strongest and so on, uh, would be the ones who were likely to survive uh, and to breed successfully. So there is the sort of Malthusian element there. But in terms of um, you know, how species evolve um, and the difference between varieties and species and so on, I don't say he's vague, but there are certain steps in the logic that uh, are, are not presented to us. So there is no kind of logical kind of um, sequence that one can follow although one can speculate. That's rather remarkable. Um, in the course of writing the book, did you generate feelings toward Wallace? Did you, did you come to like him a great deal or or perhaps not like him? I, I would imagine like him. He seems to be a very likable guy. Yes, I, I generated a lot of warmth towards him, um, I have to say. and it, It's partly, I think, you mentioned that I was able to quote a lot of correspondence, a lot of family correspondence, and I was given access to uh, the Wallace family papers very generously by Wallace's grandsons. And I got a, a strong sense of, of family continuity um, through them and through looking at both the papers I did quote and, and, and other papers that uh, were simply part of the uh, of the family um, treasures, and I, I I came to admire Wallace uh, a great deal, I and mean, he was a very generous spirited man, and he never seemed to bear any resentment uh, about the fact that 
uh, Darwin had priority uh, and, in fact, pr devoted a lot of his time to promoting Darwin and promoting Darwin's ideas so that even even when he came he comes back to England and he he is received well by the scientific community but he never finds good paid employment uh, back in England after his travels came to an end but he, he always took this um, very very generously and, and positively and would then set down to write another book um, or towards some other project. He always thought it was um, for the best. And the other side that I came to admire hugely about him was that he was hugely interested in, in people and in the, pl the plight and fortunes um, of people and peoples. I mean, he was a socialist. Um, he was, uh, he, he believed in land reform. Um, he believed in um, inequality. And he was prepared to work with organizations, some of them less than popular, um, with the scientific or, the, or with the political establishment, um, to try and you know, bring about a better world. He, he, he had a very strong sense of, um, of progress and that the world should be able to advance and that if people were thoughtful and intelligent enough um, and, and had unselfish thoughts and unselfish practices, but they could bring about better living standards for everybody. So that side of him, I, I really admired. You, uh, I'm, I'm interested in how you came to write the book. You're primarily a theater person, I believe, based on uh, my reading on the, the book jacket about you. But you do also have an interest in uh, Victorian scientific travelers. And I assume that's where the Wallace spark uh, came from. All right. Yes, it it came from that, and it came perhaps even from from one step before that, which was I wrote a, a biography of Samuel Butler, um, who was heavily involved in Darwinian debates and of ideas, and it was in reading about Butler that I came across Wallace first and just realised I didn't know very much about him. Then I, I wrote uh, a book called Bright Paradise, um, Victorian Scientific Travellers, uh, within which Wallace was, was one of my travellers. I, I wrote particularly uh, the ones I got close to, uh, the three uh, naturalists who went out to the Amazon, Wallace, uh, Bates, and, and Richard Spruce. Uh, but I also wrote about people like Hooker um, and... Uh, a Rhett Mary Kingsley and uh, a, a whole range of, of travellers. So that was my sort of broad background. And then I decided I, I really wanted to, to concentrate and focus on, on, on Wallace and explore him further. 
Are you uh, obviously you're glad that you made that decision, but um, what do you think your I mean, it takes years to write a biography. What do you what do you think you personally got out of this experience? I probably should have I, I probably should have spent longer writing it. Um, and I, I think, think that's my what one regret. I think Darwin said I, the same thing. <laughs> yes, I. Because I, um, you know, had an academic career and a, uh, and a teaching program, uh, there was a limited amount of time that I could devote um, to Wallace. And some of me uh, wishes I'd spent another five years. Um, some of some of me wishes that I could do it again now, when so much material is available uh, online. Mm-hmm. So there was a big difference between riffling through um, envelopes of, of manuscript letters in the drawers of somebody's house and having all the correspondence published online uh, and available. And I, I guess I did it the old-fashioned way, um, which is good from some points of view in that it's quite a sort of intimate um, way of doing it. Um, rather than the, the sort of high-tech way one might do it now. And I, I think, I mean, I've, I've, I've derived enormous pleasure out of it. And, for instance, this year, um, my, my book has been published um, in, fr- in French, um, and I believe in Portuguese in, in Brazil, although I've not actually seen the hard evidence of that. So I've been fortunate in that uh, my my interest in, in Wallace has, has been maintained. And I, I return to him as somebody I, I find quite inspirational. And one last thing before I let you go. Why has the um, – why has there been a – a, uh, I'm, I'm not sure to call it whether to call it a resurgence or a surgence, if you will, of interest in Wallace over the last decade or so. When when I went to school, you learned Darwin and Wallace was never mentioned. I would put it down to a number of factors, um, and some of them are, are quite personal. There is Dr. George Beccaloni at the Natural History Museum has been a standard bearer. Uh, for Wallace over the last few years, and I would I would say that it's very largely due not just to him but to a, n- a number of other enthusiasts, um, of of which he is perhaps the most prominent, who have promoted Wallace, um, not not in the sense to to disparage uh, um, Darwin in any way, but to give uh, Wallace his his proper due. That you know, ten years ago, I remember going round the the Darwin exhibition at the Natural History Museum, and this was when I was first working on Wallace, and there was not a single reference to Wallace there at all. Um, and uh, the fact that now there is, you know, a, the portrait, the statue, uh, is is down to a, a band of enthusiasts, but there has been. Now, uh, a lot of very good writing and, uh, and research on Wallace. And 
for instance, uh, this year, his, his correspondence from the Malay archipelago has been published, um, which, which is a lovely book, which presents all the letters that survive, that we know of, uh, that Wallace wrote from the, the Malay archipelago in that eight years, plus uh, significant letters to him, i.e. those from, from Darwin or from Roger Brooke or from his agent Stevens and so on. And I think that's made Wallace much more accessible. Um, Wallace also, although I think his writing is brilliant, um, uh, for instance, The Malay Archipelago is, a, is an unputdownable book, but it's also a quite a modest book. And you, you don't necessarily get the full flavor um, of, of the man from it, um, although you get a most wonderful reading experience. And I think... You know, contemporary research has, as it were, brought him up and allowed him now to, to stand uh, alongside Darwin um, and, and others. Uh, and one can then appreciate uh, the full sort of richness of the, of the 19th century discovery. If you plan to be in New York City on November 12th, there's a day-long symposium devoted to Wallace at the American Museum of Natural History. That day-long symposium will conclude with an address by the aforementioned David Attenborough. The American Museum of Natural History can be found on Central Park West between 77th and 81st Streets in Manhattan. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our section on citizen science. These are projects in which researchers depend on science-interested individuals like you to help them analyze data and evaluate evidence. You won't merely be letting your computer do grunt work. These projects require human eyes and ears like yours, I assume. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.